Welcome to RPG Storytime, the channel where we take stories generated out of role-playing games and narrate them in short, digestible segments. Today we are presenting Gangbusters, the 1920s game of mysteries, mobsters, and mayhem. The module is Murder and Harmony by Mark Akers. Why do the wealthy always have the worst taste in wallpaper? Their light fixtures, their furniture, their carpet, their doorways all look nice. But your eyes can't get away from the unending stripes of the wallpaper. It's distracting. And that's the last thing I need because there's enough else to see in this dining room that I need to take in, and even more in the adjoining drawing room where a murder took place last night. At the edge of the room I can just see where the vertical black lines on the wall are crisscrossed by red splatters of blood. I'm still waiting for my host to come down and greet me, so I head over to take a look. Peeking around the corner, I can see where the body had lay. Tape on the carpet reveals where it had fallen. Its crumpled position implies that it had fallen over something on the way down, probably the turned-over drink tray. The pool of blood begins at the head and spreads out from there. Judging from the height of the blood spatter on the wall, the distance and the trajectory, I get the idea that the gun was fired just under the height of the head, probably about the neck. A short hallway leads around a corner to the opposite side of the drawing room where an opening leads right into where the shot was fired, so I hurry down there. Upon entering, I stand where the killer stood, right in the entryway of the room. I look around myself. I'm standing in the vestibule of the house where I first entered. The hallway I came down and the staircase stand right next to the entry to the drawing room I'm looking in. To the right is a long corridor going the length of the drawing room, and to the left, an entry to a study. I head in there. The room is filled with orchestra memorabilia, concert posters, antique instruments, a phonograph player with records of great performances. Playbills of important shows stand upright on a shelf next to a large photograph of the Lakefront City Symphony Orchestra. A cello sits in a corner on its stand. Neatly stacked on the polished oak desk is paperwork related to the Amalgamated Musicians Union. Most notably, one of the drawers is partially open. A lock that's on it was clearly not used. I use my pinky finger to slide it further open and find cleaning supplies for a gun, but no gun. My eyes then catch an ashtray sitting next to the drawer. Several cigarettes are in it. All the same brand except one. I gently pick it up between my two fingers. It's thinner than the others, fancy, and made of a tougher material. I also notice teeth marks chewed into the others, but none on this. The clacking of high-heeled shoes marching down the hall grab my attention, and I pocket the cigarette. The police already came through and missed this clue. I might as well keep it. The long blonde curls of the woman come bobbing around the corner, her back to me as she looks in the drawing room. I step up behind her. She turns around startled and perturbed. I told Gardner to show you to the dining room. It was the butler. What? The gardener didn't see me in, the butler did. Gardner is the butler's name. Oh, that must get confusing. I shouldn't be surprised he brought you to the wrong room, though. He's very distraught at the murder of my husband. And you? What about me? You're very distraught too, aren't you? Oh, yes, yes, it's a horrible thing. She musters up some tears, but she's clearly thinking about something else. Let's go sit down. She leads me through to the other side of the study into the room beyond. Two walls of tall windows invite long beams of sunlight in. A wide array of soft cushioned sofas arc around a small rise in the floor where a grand piano takes center stage, and seats for other musicians surround it. I feel like I should have bought a ticket, I say. She smiles. 
Deep dimples form along with growing crow's feet around her eyes. She has the sort of face and the type of maintenance you expect in a place like this. She also has the sort of professional mannerisms that make her a permanent fixture. Have a seat, she says. I make myself comfortable, my eyes always darting around us, taking in what I can, though there's little to learn here that I didn't already see in the study. She sits across from me, but instead of sinking into the cushion, she seems to float on its outer shell. She's cautious about speaking, trying to think of what to say, so I start. So, Mrs. Overton, I think I know why you brought me here. I can see that the police have already botched the investigation. I suggest we start with- Mr. Griebel, I have not asked you here to investigate the death of my husband. You haven't? Oh no, the police are investigating that. I need you to do something else for me, and I need it done in the strictest confidence. Speechless, I pull my hand away from my pocket and listen. She continues- There's a gentleman named Will Feynman. He has some documents in his possession for which I need recovered and brought to me. I stare at her for a long moment, scrutinizing her. She tells me that she will pay me $2,500 in expenses. I continue to stare at her. She says that if I'm in need of a car, she can loan me one until the job is done. I keep looking at her as sweat begins to bead on her brow. Why are you staring? She asks. Your husband died last night from a gunshot wound to the head. In your home. These must be important papers. They pertain to our marriage. Some elements of the will... It's complicated, but I will need them before my lawyer executes the will next Thursday. And your lawyer is? Richard Thorndyke. But I would rather he not be privy to this. So you want me to steal these documents from this Feynman guy? Yes. What you want is a cat burglar. Unfortunately, they don't advertise in the newspaper. You are well known for being discreet. And you are also known, but admittedly by fewer people, to be willing to bend some rules. I really need to tell people to stop giving out my secrets. I'll round it off to 3000 I don't know where exactly he's staying, but he's from out of town and has expensive taste, so I'd imagine he's at one of the finer hotels. I stare at Mrs. Overton a moment longer before agreeing to take the case. Or thievery. The lines blur in this business. And one thing Mrs. Overton is being too polite to say is that I'm desperate for work, and she knows it. I started my independent work as a PI on the heels of some well-publicized police work I did, but some of my other habits were also publicized that zeroed out my benefits. So I'm taking what I can to get started. As I turn the key several times to get my car going, I notice the landscape around Overton Manor. The front is clean and neat with minimal foliage except at the periphery to keep the neighbors out. They're far enough away that if the murder had taken place without anyone home, the others in the neighborhood might not have heard it. Oddly, the one tree that does grow on the property sprouted up right behind the house, its branches curling up over the roof as though hugging it from above. Then I remind myself that I'm not investigating the murder. My job is to steal some papers. I need to focus on that. At least she doesn't know where he is. I can look forward to solving where this Feynman guy is holed up. Unfortunately, that's pretty simple. The number of hotels that an affluent man like that would go to could be counted on one hand. The most obvious choice is the Lexington Hotel. I can even stop for a quick drink at Harrington's. But then I stop myself, remembering I'm not welcome there anymore after I inadvertently started a panic there last time. Maybe I can stop by Little Oggies afterward. Arriving at the Lexington Hotel, I realize there's something in the air today. Or maybe it's just my luck. But something happened here that I once again just missed. A couple police cars are leaving, but there's still one remaining. 
scratch off the idea of swiping the papers during the day if they're here. As I head inside, a couple well-dressed goons who look alike brush by me, their broad shoulders knocking into me as if telling me they own the sidewalk. The rich. You'd think they have enough without wanting to own public property, too. As I near the front desk, I notice that the concierge is shaking. His grin is as pasted on as mine is when I go to a party. Yes, can I help you? He asks. I'm looking for a guest who might be here. We have lots of guests. Our guests value their privacy and want... I slap 20 more bucks on the table. He pauses again, then continues. To know they aren't treated so cheaply. I slap down a 50. He places a guest book over the money. But for family matters, let's see where your uncle is staying, shall we? Feynman. Willie Feynman, or I take back the 50. The concierge pulls up the book enough to slide his hand under and swipe back the money. Guess I shouldn't have tipped my hand. Luckily, it pays off. Feynman's on the fifth floor, room 503. The man's hand is still shaking, though, and it's not because of me. I'm trying to think of a way to get him to tell me when I notice someone else out of the corner of my eye, a short woman with a round head and close-cropped dark blonde hair. She's following a reporter, who is in turn following a police officer while chatting with him. I leave the suspicious desk clerk and step up behind the woman. Amy Jo True, investigating a story on methods of distillation in hotel bathtubs? I already finished that one. I thought I'd graduate to your taste and tag along on a murder investigation. I guess that explains the police car. Mr. Griebel, this is Bill Wilson, my boss. He runs the crime unit of my paper. Yeah, I've read your bits. And I have heard of you, of course, Detective Griebel. Private Dick now. Yes, I know. You wouldn't be here just getting a room. Got an uncle coming to town. I want to find a good place for him to stay. Right. Bill Wilson turns his attention back to the officer he was talking to. A guy named Phil. He was just starting the force when I left it, but he's a decent kid. AJ is smirking. Don't people have uncles? I asked. The body's been taken out, but the scene's still preserved. Want to take a look? I shrug my shoulders. Phil, you mind? Phil tosses her the keys and tells her to return them to the desk when she leaves. She takes me upstairs to the third floor and we go to the room. She unlocks it and we go inside. The room is a shambles. Dresser drawers have been pulled out and smashed on the floor. Furniture has been overturned. The only chair in the room has been slashed open. The bloody mattress has been removed from the bed and part of the stuffing is ripped out. The window on the far end that leads to a fire escape is left open. Guess somebody wanted something. Officer says they think it's a mob hit. The victim was someone named Johnny Perucchio, also called the Weasel. You know him? A thief and a safecracker. I had him up on charges about three years ago, but he somehow beat the rap. I think he had connections. Well, not anymore. Shot four times in the chest. I look down at the chalk mark of the body. The location of the blood confirms what AJ is saying. The arm is reaching toward a wall, which I turn my eyes toward. Written in blood is the word key. I was wondering how long it would take you to find that, AJ says. What does that mean? It's a small metal item you use to unlock doors? Thanks, smart Alec. If you figure it out, you're better than the police. Hmm, I say, looking over the floor. There are muddy footprints spread around, but they don't lead to the window where the killer seemed to escape. I think you're better than the police. I can at least hold my liquor better than any of them can. What are you here for? She asks. I stare at her. You really weren't here for this body. What else is shaking? Fodder for your boss, huh? Get you that big promotion? Scoop for myself. Somehow I haven't found a lot of satisfaction living only under Bill's shadow. You've had some bylines. 
enough that if I was a man, I'd have my own column. But here's a newsflash for you. A woman needs something a bit more heavy to get attention. And I don't need my investigation ruined by headlines. Look, I know some of Bill's stories weren't fair to you when you were a cop. I'm not him, though. And I won't be. Let me scoop this from under his feet. You know how to convince someone, that's for sure. How about we do a trade? That concierge downstairs was nervous about something. I think it has to do with this murder. You find out what secret he's keeping, and I'll tell you why I'm here. If we're trading, I already gave you some information by bringing you here. You owe me now. Okay, then talk to the concierge because you're curious too, and you want to get to the bottom of this. That sly little grin grows across AJ's face, and she agrees. We go downstairs, and I pretend to be making a phone call while she goes to speak with the concierge. I don't know what they're talking about. But after a while, it starts becoming odd that I'm talking for so long to one person on the phone, so I plug some more coins in and pretend to make another call. Then a third. God, what do people talk about when they ramble about small talk? Whatever it is, AJ is good at it, because she's got him confiding in her quietly. When at last she is finally done, we both exit the hotel and take a walk while she tells me what he told her. Perucchio, Mr. Key as I'm calling him in my head, came into the hotel about midnight last night. He was carrying a canvas bag and he asked the hotel clerk to wake him at 6 a.m. Willie, the man who told her all this, went on duty at 6 and woke Perucchio, who then left with the bag. He returned two hours later without the bag. About 9.15 or so, Willie the concierge heard gunshots, and he rushed upstairs after the police arrived. Swanky hotels, always the best clientele, I say. Your turn, she says. Why are you here? I look around to make sure no one's eavesdropping. Then I tell her, Rich dame by the name of Betty Overton. You're investigating her husband's murder? Not exactly. I'm curious about it, but she sent me on a separate errand. Something not publishable. Wait, Arthur Overton contacted my boss two days ago. He did? He said he had something. A notebook. Said it had information about bootlegging activities throughout the city. Hell, I could tell you about that. One of the places is your bathtub. I mean one of the syndicates. Apparently he had the skinny on his members and what they were up to. She pulls out her notebook and starts paging through the information. I've got it here. I take all the notes while Bill takes all the credit. Maybe that's what she's wanting me to steal. Steal? There, I say, pointing to a note that has Overton's name. Yes, Overton told Bill that he had a notebook with all the information stored away in a safe in his bedroom. He told him that if anything should happen to him, Bill should tell Overton's wife about it and make sure the contents are made public. Did he? We only learned about the murder this morning, but he probably did. It's Saturday. I'm not even supposed to be working. You got there before they took the body away. You have good eyes. Better than most cops. Thank, AJ. Did he have mud on his shoes? Yes. I thought it was odd, but figured if it was important, the police would have something about it. How did you know? Ride with me. I don't know. I should probably get to the office. It's Saturday. You're not even supposed to be working. Right. Okay, where do you want to go? We park near the Overton Mansion, in plain view of not only the house, but the tree behind it. Keep an eye out, I tell her, and I take a walk. I can hear her asking what I'm doing, but that fades away in the distance as I head into the backyard. AJ begins to follow, but keeps a closer eye on the mansion in fear that we might be caught. It's helpful. This way I can remain focused on my search. Once I get close to the back of the house, I spot the footprints. They lead into, then come out of an open basement window. Not what I was expecting, but I follow them, 
They go to the tree, then disappear, except for a few spots on larger, climbable branches. I begin to climb them, heading exactly where I know he went, right up to a window on the second floor. I slip my fingers underneath and flip it up. Somewhere at the base of the house, I hear the hissing of AJ trying to get me to stop, but I keep going. Inside, I find the master bedroom suite. It's two rooms with an opening between them, and it's as fancy and expensive as I expect. The best care hired workers can give. I walk carefully but quietly through, remaining upright in case I'm seen so I can pretend some form of normalcy in what I'm doing. I follow occasional flakes of mud left behind on the carpet. And then I see it. I had expected the safe to be hard to find, behind a painting or under furniture or something. But there it is, wide open, and empty. The weasel strikes again, and for the last time. But how did he know about the notebook? And what was he doing downstairs? The phone rings. I freeze. Someone's going to come to pick it up. I search for somewhere to hide, but then it stops mid-ring. Someone got it in another room. I hear the voice faintly, a formal, upright voice, the butler named Gardner. I wonder for a moment if the gardener is named Butler. How ironic would that be? Listening at the door, I hear the butler tell Mrs. Overton, and she says she'll get it in her room. I hurry into the bedroom part of the suite. Luckily, it's made up of two rooms, so I'm able to get behind a wall just before she opens the door. I hear her pick up the phone. Hello, who is this? You slimy creep. I expected you to call earlier, but then I forgot. Things that live under rocks aren't early risers, are they? I see. Oh, I wouldn't miss it for the world, and I will bring a little something extra for you. Something special. After another moment, she slams down the phone. I peek out and see her holding her head in frustration. Then her shoulders begin to shake, and she starts to cry. The weeping gets stronger and stronger, mixes with rage, and she sobs. She picks up knickknacks from her desk and throws them about the room. I use the noise to mask my leaving, and I head back out onto the tree. Tune in next time to hear what happens. If you would like to see visualizations of our episodes, check out our YouTube channel at the link in the description. You can also read books by the writer and game master of these stories by going to bandwagononline.com. Happy gaming, everybody!